I'm Francis Dernley from The Telegraph. And I'm Francis Farrell from the Kiev Independent. And we're calling in live from the Kiev Independent Studios. I'm Roland Oliphant, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest news from Ukraine as Zelensky says Russia is taking advantage of Western aid delays and a Russian helicopter pilot who defected to Ukraine has been found shot dead in Spain. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting from the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday the 20th of February 2024. One year and 360 days since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today I'm joined by David Knowles, Francis Dernley and Dominic Nichols speaking to us from the Kiev Independence offices. I started with the latest news from Ukraine. Today is the 20th of February, which makes it the 10th anniversary of the the sniper massacre on Kiev's Maidan Square in 2014. And you will see an awful lot of discussion and public tribute to that event today, um, Vladimir Zelensky um, saying it's been 10 years since attempts to destroy us and our independence. We stood firm 10 years ago and continue to do so today. This week is, of course, just why I'm noting it at the beginning of the space. What happened on Maidan 10 years ago quickly triggered the Russian annexation of Crimea less than a week later. That triggered the war in Donbass. That brings us to the major war we are fighting today. So a majorly symbolic week, especially because on Saturday we will be marking two years since the, the full-scale invasion. So expect to see around any kind of discussion of, of the war this week. A lot of talk about that, a lot of looking back, a lot of assessing where we were. But without much further ado, on to the latest news. Military updates in Avdiivka, which has been the major set-piece battle of the past few weeks. Reports are that the tempo of Russian offensive operations has quite seriously dropped off. So Dmitry Likhovoy, uh, the spokesman for Ukraine's Tavris group of forces, which is responsible for that sector, speaking yesterday, he said the number of Russian attacks in the Avdiivka direction have significantly decreased in the past day. And that suggests Russian forces are regrouping and conducting clearing operations in the ground they've taken rather than trying to immediately exploit a breakthrough. He said shelling uh, and aviation activity had had also decreased. The Ukrainian general staff, marginally more specific, said Ukrainian troops had repelled nine enemy attacks around Avdiivka near the villages of Lastochkin, Severny, Pervomaisky and Novelsky. Now, they form a line... Roughly, I'm speaking very roughly, but just to give you an idea of how the front lines changed, about five kilometers west of Avdiivka city center and about seven and a half kilometers west of where the end of the salient was at the beginning of this month. So that gives you a rough idea of where the line is stabilizing, if it's stabilizing for now, since the Avdiivka salient closed over the weekend. Also in Avdiivka, uh, the BBC have this morning named three of the Ukrainian soldiers who are at the center of allegations that... Russia, who may have been murdered by Russian troops after being taken prisoner. Now, this is about six soldiers who were found dead after Russia captured the city. The BBC have named three of them as Ivan Zhitnik, uh, Andrei Dubnitsky, and Georgi Pavlov. 
identified by relatives who saw their faces on footage published by Russian military bloggers after the Russians captured Avdiivka. Now, those relatives had told the BBC that the Russians had pledged to evacuate wounded soldiers who'd been trapped and surrounded in the pocket after they moved in, but instead shot them. Now, that report originally comes from the Kiev Independence. I'm sure the guys in Kiev who were speaking to the Kiev Independent will have some more to, to add to that. Elsewhere, along the line as a whole, the Ukrainian general staff reported 81 combat clashes, contacts, um, fights uh, over the past 24 hours. That's the Ukrainian general staff speaking this morning. 87 Russian airstrikes. It said that attacks were repelled near Kupiansk. That's up in the Kharkiv region. Moving further south around Bakhmut, then around Avdiivka, of course, then round in the Zaporizhia region. More Russian attacks on the Robotinia and Verbovia in the salient created by last summer's offensive in Zaporizhia. And they also said the Russians are continuing to try to dislodge the Ukrainian foothold in the southern bank of the Dnipro opposite Kherson. Uh, five civilians were killed in a strike on a village near the Russian border in the Sumy region, which is, of course, in northeastern Ukraine. Now, Volodymyr Zelensky himself was in Kupiansk yesterday. Just a remind, I'm sure regular listeners don't need a reminder, but Kupiansk is a, it's a kind of key junction that the in the Kharkiv region, so the northern end of the line, not far from the Russian border, that the Ukrainians recaptured in September 22. The Russians have been trying to take it back again. He was visiting the, the Ukraine's one fourteenth, a 14th separate mechanized brigade, and he had a pretty bleak message. So this is President Zelensky speaking in his, his nightly kind of telegram video address afterwards. He said Russian forces are, quote, taking advantage of the Western Allies' delays in providing military aid. Here's the quote, part of the quote from his video. The situation is extremely difficult in several parts of the front line where Russian troops have amassed maximum reserves. He said, they are taking advantage of the delays in aid to Ukraine. These are very tangible issues. There is a deficit of artillery. There is a need for frontline air defense and longer range weapons. And that, of course, chimes with our reporting, the reporting of countless journalists speaking to frontline soldiers that brings us quickly to diplomatic updates. So the Republicans in the House of Representatives are, of course, continuing to oppose the $95 billion aid package, which includes a large chunk for Ukraine that the Senate passed. Now, Joe Biden has said he is willing to speak to Mike Johnson, the, the Republican Speaker of the House, who so far has refused to even bring this to the floor for a vote. A slight snag is that Congress is not going to return from a recess until February 28th. So even if this can be got through, there's still going to be a delay. Elsewhere, Sweden itself has just announced it will donate 7.1 billion Kronish, sweet, sorry, 7.1 billion Swedish krona, which is about 542 billion pounds of aid. That's Sweden's biggest military package to Ukraine yet. It includes, see, about 153 million pounds worth of artillery shells, as well as anti-aircraft guns, recallless rifles, maritime assault vessels, marine mines, underwater drones, things like that. Also in, in diplomatic developments, Finland's Interior Minister Mary Ratanen, um says the country has information showing that, I'll read the quote, we have information that thousands of people on the Russian side are waiting to get into Finland. And he's talking about third country migrants in Russia. He says this represents a threat to society. So she says this represents a threat to society. Um, the Finns haven't said how they have acquired this information. But Finland closed its eastern border with Russia late last year amid a growing number of arrivals without valid documents. And this is 
this goes back here. So if you go back to the winter, the autumn winter of 2021, in the last few months before the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, you will remember an enormous similar migrant crisis on the Belarusian border with Poland, which is being described at the time by the Poles as a coordinated, a deliberate attempt by Russia and Belarus to destabilize the European Union. Finland is saying they're seeing the same thing. If you go back to the war in Syria in the 2010s, you suddenly had a massive influx of Syrians coming across the the Arctic border between Russia and Norway. There wasn't at that point much suggestion that was weaponized, but it was later suggested that this was part of a deliberate Russian policy. And close to home, farmers in Poland have resumed their blockade of roads on the Ukrainian border this morning, protesting what against what they call uncontrolled imports. This is a real, a really serious issue, actually. So this has been going on for weeks. Polish farmers complaining about a drop-off in grain, which they blame on Poland's deals with, with Ukraine. So dozens of tractors have shown up in Riki. That's a town about 100 kilometers southeast of Warsaw to block a major highway leading to the Ukrainian border. Oleksandr Kubrakov, that's the Ukrainian deputy prime minister, has called it a political provocation. His quote is a scattering of Ukrainian grain on railroad tracks. So that's one thing that's happened today. Grain unloaded onto railway tracks is another political provocation aimed at dividing our nations. And Ukraine's ambassador to Poland has asked the Polish police to respond. This is significant because, and we'll probably be speaking more about it tomorrow, the RUSI, the Royal United Services Institute, has a new report out tomorrow about Russia's non-conventional warfare outside Ukraine. And one thing they talk about is the, the polarization and weaponization of issues like this. And the objective, we'll talk more about it in due course, the objective is to polarize and radicalize society, seize onto a, an issue that perhaps where there are perhaps legitimate concerns. Most farmers protesting are probably not Russian agents. They simply genuinely are feeling economic hurt. You radicalize that, you polarize it, and the objective, as this recent report makes out, is to provide a constituency for friendly members of a country's elite to then gain influence. So this kind of thing, the Ukrainians, but also Western security services will be having a strong look at. And the last international update, the Russian helicopter pilot who defected to Ukraine um, was found, it has been confirmed that it's his bullet-ridden body that was found in an underground garage in Spain. And so Maxim Kuzimov flew a helicopter to Ukraine um, last August. Sergei Naryshkin, the director of Russia's foreign intelligence, has spoke, been the only Russian figure to speak publicly on it. He stopped short of claiming responsibility, but he did say, quote, in Russia it is customary to speak either good of the dead or nothing at all. This traitor and criminal became a moral corpse at the very moment when he planned his dirty and terrible crime. Now, not a, not a, an explicit claim of responsibility there, but it was reported the GRU had been tasked with, uh, with hunting down uh, Kuzminov. Um, that pretty much wraps up our military and international updates for the time being. I'm going to call in, if our team in Kiev is on the line, we're going to move over to the, to the Kiev Independent Office, I think... 
It's David here. We're all using Dom's phone just to make it slightly easier, but it's very good to hear you, Roland. Yes, you're right. We're in the newsroom of the Kiev Independent. We're in their wonderful podcast studio, and I've spent the afternoon here talking to their journalists. We, it's, it's such an honor to be here. We rely a lot on their reporting, and their investigations are some of the best on the war in Ukraine over the past two years and before. So it's a real honor to speak to the journalists here behind the stories that they've been breaking. I know that Francis and Dom have been up to other things, so I'll throw over very quickly to Francis Sternley. But of course, we've got Francis Farrell uh, also with us, reporter from the Kiev Independent. So there's two Francis's, uh, Roland, and Francis, is just, Francis Farrell has just got back from the Munich Security Conference and before was in Donbass. So we'll be talking to him slightly later. But Francis Sternley, keep up with me, listeners. Francis Sternley, you have some first reflections. It's your first time in Kiev. What do you make of it? Yeah, it's been fascinating, David. One often hears people say that one can easily forget there is a war in Kyiv, that it's such a thriving city. And I can see why people say that. It is a metropolis. When we arrived, there was an air raid. People were still going about their business. The cars were driving through the the streets at speed. But I do think it's also slightly overdone when people say that. There are signs of the war everywhere. Here. And I mean that literally. There are billboards where they're asking for soldiers to sign up. Recruitment billboards. There are, as I say, air raids. We were woken up by one at the early hours of this morning, went down to the shelter. It was all over in about 15 minutes. But even so, that's a part of everyday life here, hearing the sirens crying out over the city. It's definitely more sparsely populated than one would expect for a city of its size. The hotel we're staying at is almost empty. And of course, this is a hotel that's designed for and has a lot of insignia on the wall of international visitors that have come over the years. Feels like we're sometimes the only ones there at breakfast. As I say, no tourists. There are buildings with security around it, obviously government and military buildings that are wary of having cars passing them and so you can see that they've put up bollards etc there's a curfew at night so I just wanted to give you a sense really that when you hear people say oh Kiev, it's this thriving place full of life the war hasn't affected it that may be true once you're here for a sustained period but I think that when you first arrive there are signs of the, the melancholy fog of war Thank you very much, Francis Dernley. Dom, can we come to you just quickly, speak about some of your activities today, as much as you can say? Yeah, thanks, David. Hi, everybody. So, came out of the blocks pretty quickly this morning. Had a good interview in the last couple of hours with a senior official here in the Ukrainian regime. Won't say who it is for now, because I think that's going to come out in the next couple of days, the interview there. So I don't want to spoil that and make a, we'll make a big deal of it when it, when it comes out. But it was a very interesting interview. One of the most intense interviews I've ever done, staring into her eyes through the gloom. Very interesting. But I, yeah, as I say, keep my powder dry on that one. I will talk more about it in the next couple of days about who I spoke to. But for now, I'm afraid I have to keep my finger pressed firmly to my lips. Thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Let's go to Francis Farrell now. Francis Farrell of the Kiev Independent. I believe you were the first Kiev Independent reporter we invited onto the podcast. So it's a huge pleasure to meet you in person and and to speak to you today. And Roland, I would say, do listen to this. And if you've got questions as well for Francis, please do chip in at the end. But Francis, you've just come back from the Munich Security Conference. Can you explain to us why you were there, what you heard, and talk us through your experiences? Thanks, David. Yeah, it's great to see you all in person as well. I remember that day when I first did the first episode. I think that was actually when I'd just gotten back from 
uh, Avdivka at the time. And unfortunately, I haven't been since then, and I don't think I will for a while. But so, yeah, that's what I was paying attention to from the back of my head, always looking at these stories, these updates from Avdivka. But at the same time, in person, I was in Munich at this huge congregation of top leaders and ministers and, and generals and all kinds of other different suits flowing around between them. And it was my first time at something like this. And I managed to have a few interesting conversations, which we can talk about. But overall, obviously, and I've read, written about this, the general vibe at the place was gloomy, was bleak. Obviously, a different part of the world was more focused on the Middle East and Israel-Gaza, but because this was in Europe and it is a more Western focused event, although the Chinese foreign minister and others were there. The big thing was Europe, Ukraine, and it was all kind of a perfect storm, really, because on one hand, you did have Avdiivka, the Russians really pushing forward amid this ammunition crisis. But on the other hand, you had Trump's recent comments about not only refusing to defend, but encouraging an aggressor if they attacked a NATO country which hadn't paid its fee, by which he, I think he meant the, the defense spending kind of guideline. So that was the big takeaway, like the big vibe for me in Munich was all these European countries talking about them needing to defend themselves independently from the US typical kind of umbrella of defense. But then from the Ukrainian point of view, the question is, okay, you're getting ready to defend yourself, you're upping your own production, that takes time. And in the meantime, Ukraine is starting to maybe even lose the war. So what are you going to do something about that step up? And that was the interesting thing that I kept my eye on. Thank you so much, Francis, for talking us through that. Could you tell us a little bit more about some of these conversations you've been having then? You said the tone was gloomy. Were there any points for optimism that you picked up on? What would you want our leaders, our listeners sorry, to take away from this? Yeah, of course. So the people I talk to, it's always tough to get any interviews at these things because they're all so busy with their own schedules. But I managed to talk to the defense ministers of Sweden and the Netherlands and also to the prime minister of the Netherlands, Mark Rutte, who was going to be potentially could become the next secretary general of NATO as well as just a couple of questions to the president-elect of Finland, the president of Lithuania and the foreign minister of Lithuania. There's a pattern here. These are all European countries which have all... They, they can't change the game on their own, but they've all done things to go out of their way to advocate and support for Ukraine. So the Netherlands, for example, first country to give F-16s, which should arrive hopefully, hopefully soon... You have the example of Finland making the decision to go into NATO, close their border with Russia, as we've just heard. You have Lithuania, obviously, which is always very <laughs> radically militant on this topic. And that was one of the people who really impressed me the most, the foreign minister of Lithuania, um, Gabrielius Landsberg. He's famously vocal and famously very eloquent on the issue. But when I was listening to him, I almost felt like he was uh, Ukrainian, like it seemed like this is a country which, for every right reason, is making Ukraine's problems their own in every way. And that's where this question of pessimism and optimism comes up, because coming from Ukraine, we realize that if mainly it's up to the Republicans, of course, needing to pass the funds, but in general, we have a negative trend. We have the Russians going forward. We have ammunition running out, and that eventually is potentially leading Ukraine on a tra trajectory towards defeat. And that's what he talked about as well. Whereas if you 
take some of the other U European leaders I spoke to, like Ruta, for example, he he didn't want to raise the panic button and raise the alarm kind of thing. He When I did push him on some of these things, on this potential prospect of some kind of defeat, he was one of those people who turned attention back to the victories. Like, it's worth remembering that you guys liberated all of your territory. And the Finnish president-elect said, I think, the same thing. You have to remember, Putin tried to destroy Ukraine, but he failed. And that's all great, but that's not relevant to the current situation. And I think that question often, yeah, dominated that kind of disconnect in our discussions. Francis, could you talk then, let's move away from the security conference and talk about your recent time in Donbass. Um, what were some of the concerns from the soldiers on the ground? What did you see? And what should our listeners be aware of? What are the things that they're facing? Yeah, sure. So when I was there, I had a short time because I had to go to Munich. So it was a bit of a deadline and I didn't manage to work in the Avdivka area, which obviously would have been the most hot. But that's the problem with journalistic work on the front line these days. You can normally go to the areas where it's quieter and get closer to the action, but where it's really hot it's just it's not even a question of of army bureaucracy it's just you like the basic danger so for example working with infantry in an intense area is basically impossible now because uh, of fpv drones because anywhere you go uh, within a certain range there's just that likelihood that they will probably see you almost certainly see you and they'll almost certainly send something out to try and hit you when they do see you. And now that's not just artillery where you can take cover and if you're lucky, you'll be fine. It's a high-precision missile that can even fly into a trench. So I was working in the Bakhmut area and I made it my priority to try and listen to the artillery crews to hear about the ammunition situation. And there we got good access and we had good conversations and basically it's what you think. So when it comes, I just want to maybe describe it in a way that makes sense for a listener because people think about, okay, they're running out of ammunition, but what does that mean day to day? What it means is that if they're in a trickier situation with ammunition, they might have a target that they could see, but they just know that they can't hit it. Or they might have a very high priority target, which they just have to hit because it's an assault group moving onto their, infant, onto their infantry. But they know that they can only maximum like three shells they can fire. And otherwise it's... But it's all a strange paradigm at this moment because Ukraine either could get this funding from the US and then everything will be fine. Or they, it could not come and then everything will be really dire. So the commander of a battery said to me that they are, when they had steady supplies, they were building up a reserve as they should. And now the simple fact is that they're going through that reserve. So they can still work at a, some kind of reasonable pace if they really need to. But already that shell hunger is kicking in and it can only get worse if more doesn't arrive. Can I ask, how are the soldiers dealing with that uncertainty? Do you see it affecting their morale, that they don't know in a month or in two months if they will get that support that they need? Well, they, this was artillery soldiers. So the thing about art, working with artillery, when it comes to people ask about the morale or what's going on there, their personal morale is normally fine because they're working a fair distance back from the front line. It's nothing at all compared to what infantry go through they live fairly comfortably 
it's fine. But at the same time, there is that understanding that the infantry relies on them. So they, their job is basically to save the lives of their own infantry and cover them. That's like artillery support, artillery cover. That's what it's about. When I did push them on how they look at the kind of more dark scenario that could happen if more shells don't arrive, then you could see it in their eyes. They were on it. I don't even want to imagine that, that, that idea that they could be without our support. Francis, it's great to meet you finally after all this time. Just first of all, I've got a couple of questions. First of all, on this question of shells and artillery, it speaks, I think, to what Zeruzhny was talking about in his famous essay, where what Ukraine really needs, or one of the pillars is long-term support and a guarantee of receiving those shells. You talked about America being vital. Of course it is. What are the Ukrainians that you spoke to and Ukrainians generally saying about Europe at the moment? Do they feel that Europe is stepping up? Do they hear positive signs or is it still, it's America or nothing? Sure. When it comes to Ukrainian soldiers, that they don't all get super deep into the politics of it and into the numbers so for them for example talking about europe they look at different countries they look at britain and they love britain because boris johnson and storm shadows and then they look at germany for example and they have a lot of problems with germany because they don't give the taurus missile which i also have a problem with germany for, but on the other hand, they're the second largest supplier of military aid, and we would be in a bad, very bad place without them. The general understanding is that, of course, America is the big one, but also that America is also not really honest with its support, not just because of the Republicans, but because of all the things that they haven't given, that they, they have everything they could give, and they clearly don't seem to want a full Ukrainian victory which I think there's plenty of truth in that. But as for Europe, yeah, those who are into it more, they'll say that, yeah, they're just too slow, too complacent. They should have taken their defense seriously a long time ago. And now we're defending all of them and they need to do more. And just one more question from me. You spoke about the Munich Security Conference, pretty gloomy mood by the sounds of it. Did you get any sense that maybe... We need to reach a certain point of gloominess before some kind of real realization, revelation happens and there is a reignition of energy into the issue. And what might that be? And we've seen Avdika, we've seen Navalny's death. If it's not these things which are prominent and high profile, what could do it? Just whether you've got any sense at all that some people are saying it's now or never, enough is enough, we've got to do more. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a question that I actually put to a few people, put to a few people there. And that exactly touches on what I was saying before about which of these leaders are ready to accept this reality. And the reality is, and I think what you talked about, like what could come in the future is that this trajectory has really started. So we are, when it comes to Zaluzny, by the way, I really don't understand why everyone like took away from that the word stalemate because it's not a stalemate. It's nothing like a stalemate. It's a brutal war of attrition where both sides are depleting each other's men, equipment and ammunition. For Ukraine, it seems the ammunition is the most crucial one. And just because the front line is not moving doesn't mean it's a stalemate. And what's happening now is if you reach a, if you achieve enough in terms of attrit attriting the enemy and making them use their ammunition that they've got, 
and they can't replace. That's when things start becoming dynamic again. That's when you get Avdivka. And that's when, in the future, now we have reports of Russia, as Zelensky said, in Kupiansk. I know around Bakhmut they've been pushing a lot from soldiers I talked to and Zaporizhia. So that's, we're really potentially quite close to that point where you've got enough attrition in one way going in the favor of one side. And now things could really start moving again in a very bad way. And that's what I think could be the moment where everyone really presses the panic button. Francis, thanks so much for um, for allowing us into your your place here today. A couple of questions, if I may. One super tactical and then up a bit higher. Firstly, when you were visiting the front in the Donbass, I know you said you were with the artillery unit, so slightly further back than the infantry is right at the very front. I always used to remember in the army that soldiers complain, right? That's what they're supposed to do. They'll complain about everything. And if there's nothing to complain about, then they'll complain that there's nothing to complain about. That's a, that's a good sign. That sort of healthy black humour running through it shows that they're actually in a good place. Did you get the impression, were there other signs that would give you a sort of deeper idea of their level of morale expressed, for example, in things like, were they wearing helmets that far back behind the line? Were they taking their personal protection seriously? Were they looking after their admin of their of their location? Were they clearing up the trash and all this sort of stuff that could encourage vermin? Were they looking after their equipment? Were they, did they have weapons with their arms reached? Were they, was, someone out, was someone looking for FPV drones the whole time? Was someone on air sentry? So all these sort of basic soldiering skills that you can't, you can't really have drilled into you, but they're the first sort of things, they're the first things that will go when, you're, when your morale plummets and you just start thinking about yourself. Sure, yeah. One thing I've consistently noticed with Ukrainian soldiers is whether they've trained in some NATO camp in Europe or not. When it comes to the domestic stuff, they're pretty clean and orderly, and I didn't see anything to deny that. With the guys I was with, uh, again, I, I don't know what it's like on the zero line in many places. Pretty dire. In general, Again, with morale, it's a huge difference, you know, who you're, who you're spending time with. And there was one guy in the artillery unit. This was actually an old Soviet anti-tank gun, so it wasn't that far back from the front line, maybe five kilometers or so. There was one guy who really just loved looking at the sky all the time, <laughs> looking for drones. Uh, FPVs don't make it that far, but he was always looking. Apparently, he shot one down once with his rifle, and he was very happy with himself. But... Overall, I think when you talk about those little signs, I think one little thing that actually speaks a lot is this this patch that has been appearing a lot on some of the soldiers' equipment and clothing. They all have their patches and they buy different ones and share them around. And it has the letters DMB, uh, which stands for demobilization. And it says under, the, under that, those three letters, it says either 200... 300 or basically another acronym basically meaning AWOL. So the only way you can get demobilized at this point is either being killed, being wounded or deserting basically. And so that's that's I think that's one big thing that's hanging over a lot of people when it comes to morale and fatigue just this idea that bloody hell we're still we seem to be in this forever. There's no end date. And that's one of the things they're trying to solve with this new draft law, of course. But even there, 
it's going to be 36 months, so three years. They can't, they can't really make it any less than that because they immediately have to let a lot of people go home. There, people were starting to count those months and they were going around the room like, how many months have you got left? Oh, I've still got 18 months left. I've still got 15 months left. So yeah, it's a long way to go for these people. But again, that is for artillery where people can be tired, people can miss their family and want to go home but again for infantry to be in that same position but be at such a high risk of being wounded or killed on a daily basis is a whole different ball game thanks and just one final one taking you back to the munich security conference so you spoke to mark ritter he is looking favorite to be the next nato secretary general you said when you asked him questions he was quite retrospective and very reflective and a nice way of dodging the question i suppose but did you get the impression he was in campaigning mode bearing in mind that the eye he really has to catch is joe biden's the, you know, the american angle there did you get the impression he was thinking like that and were people around him in his team and other european representatives were they almost acting through deference were they looking at him as oh, he's going to be the next NATO secretary was there that feeling at all I didn't really pay too much attention to how the others were looking at him <laughs> when I talked to him we were actually given access along with a few other groups of press and we were brought into the main hotel where press isn't normally allowed and we had about five minutes each with him and of course other people asked him about this and he winked and grinned and said that he, he he doesn't want to talk about this because he made one comment saying that he was potentially interested and then the media ran with it and it became a whole thing. So he refused to comment on that particularly. But, you know, <laughs> personally, I think he, yeah, he definitely fits the role of a tall, spectacled uh, Northern European who's just very clean and on point when he speaks. Yeah, so... I wouldn't be surprised if yeah, he is front-runner. I interviewed Mark Ritter once many years ago in A Different Life, and he was completely charming and fair enough to deal with. His team were apoplectic at the slightest sound bleed from outside the studio, and we had to spend a lot of time placating them. But yeah, an in- interesting man. Um, Roland, back in London, you've listened to all of this. Do you have any questions for Francis? I'm just sitting here lapping it up, really. It's fascinating. I haven't been to the front for... God, months now, I mean, since September, and these little things that he's talking about, noticing new patches and stuff, that's really, that's the kind of granular stuff I miss picking up. Like, you just can't pick that stuff up by not being there, really. That's, that, that's fascinating to me. I don't think I have any questions to ask. I think he's covered it really, really well. I, I suppose I'm interested in, again, the morale of these guys, the kind of conversations that you have with soldiers. In my conversations with soldiers, they began... Okay, let me ask this, Francis, because you spend a lot more time in, in, in Kiev than I do. I probably began to notice conversations with ordinary Ukrainians I know begin to change around about September. So around about several months ago I began to hear people saying don't tell anyone I said this but I'd stop now if I could not sure how and that that was always coupled with a kind of understanding that there wasn't really a way to stop because the Russians are going to carry on and things like this it's very difficult to extrapolate from your own anecdotal conversations because none of us are independent opinion posters with able to survey thousands and thousands of people but I'm just wondering whether that kind of shift in mood is something that you've picked up on or whether you think I'm just talking to a small number of people who, I don't know, maybe that doesn't chime with kind of 
your experience. But have you sensed a kind of shift in in national mood and certainty over the past few months? Yeah, thanks, Roland. That's a great question, actually, because talking to when you're not just in Kiev having conversations from the very privileged safety of a city that's extremely well defended by air defense not on the table for a Russian attack anytime soon that's one thing among patriotic people those who donate a lot of their income all the time and volunteer and so on they'll say no no negotiations what are you talking about the same argument that has been mainstream for the whole war, basically. But of course that's different when you go elsewhere. Of course that's different when you go to the frontline areas. I was Another place I went to on this trip was Krasnohorivka, which is a small, small town between Avdivka and Marinka on the front line, actually. So it's weird because the front line there hasn't moved for 10 years. It was always right on the edge of the city, but now with the Russians potentially moving forward everywhere. Things have gotten worse there. And of course, people there are all saying, oh, they just need to get negotiate and stop. But I think, I think as you refer to, the soldiers are the really interesting ones here because they are the ones who don't have usually any illusions about, about the conflict. And I first heard something about this in August about back in August when it still seemed Ukraine was still going forward they were saying yeah the whole aim here is to put Ukraine in a, in a better position for negotiations at some point you do have some soldiers especially commanders who are not with these rose tinted goggles on as for civilians I think an interesting way to see how mood has changed although it's obviously very questionable at the same time is to look at the comments on Zelensky's Instagram, actually. I mean, that a lot of that applies to how popular he is and his, population, his popularity has dipped a lot with the whole Zeluzhny affair, but also with mobilization and this idea that more and more people need to be mobilized and taken off to this war, which is just an objective fact. It's a lot of questions around it, how they do it and what is done with those people. But in that context, you do occasionally see more and more comments saying something about stopping the war, about just ending this hell and so on. And it's an in we're at an interesting point because that's not mainstream yet. These comments do get a lot of likes. They also get a lot of debate in the replies to them. And in that way, you can see real time what Ukrainians are discussing, of course, Plenty of them might be Russian bots, although you can look at them and you can usually tell. But those discussions are happening, and I'm not one to judge anyone to say that they're wrong in that case. But the question is, what other option is there? Because Russia still wants Kiev, wants Odessa, wants Kharkiv, maybe wants all of it. And this moment of potential weakness is, is exactly the kind of thing they were aiming for. So there's still... Plenty of ways to turn it around. I don't know if this was going to come up later in my in our conversation, but I'll just segue to it now because it's one of the topics that I'm most obsessed with and I wish that people would dig into it more, is the topic of fortified lines of defense because that's not something you need billions of dollars from America for. You need resources for it, but they should come from inside and Ukraine should have what it needs. And when you have Russia 
which prepared for a Ukrainian offensive and used the time while they were attacking to dig these incredible, really effective lines of defense. I spoke to soldiers from the 47th Brigade who were there trying to push through them. They said no one digs as well as the Russians do. And then you had Ukraine attacking for several months and they just didn't do the same thing. And the more stories I hear from soldiers, but also from commanders, it's become finally a topic of discussion now with Avdivka because more and more people are asking the question publicly, where's the second line of defense? I don't see anything. Now they've started to desperately dig something. But And this is something I asked Zelensky in the press conference at, in December and got a very disappointing and strange answer. He said that, oh, they've been working on it. The different regional administrations have been working on it. And I travel around and sometimes I see they've done a good job. Sometimes I've seen they've not. And for a country whose existence depends on all of this, you it's just really baffling that they're not taking it seriously. If they were, it's not a secret or something. We would have seen it from satellites. And personally, I think... When it comes to every aspect of the war, almost the use of the saving of people's lives, of their soldiers' lives, say defending territory, causing maximum attrition to the enemy, saving ammunition, in all of these things, having good fortified lines of defense makes everything so much better, but it's just not happening. So that's definitely something I, I encourage everyone to keep a lookout on. And if you're a journalist, dig into more. I'm hoping to do so again. I already wrote one piece, but now I think needs an update. Anyway, I don't know if I answered your question, but... That's actually fascinating. And I have been speaking to people who've talked literally about that. What one person I spoke to was saying, look, the Russians have learned really well. I mean, they started badly in this war, but they've taken what the Ukrainians are good at and they begin to learn by it. And, you know, why... The basic question that was the rhetorical question was, why aren't the Ukrainians doing the same? Like that, the lines the Russians built were good, and that is a lesson to learn. And basically, I'm, I think you've put it you've put it very well. I think this is a very live debate, including amongst you know kind of Western military experts watching the war. That's I haven't any more. I'm sure we could carry on asking questions and chatting forever, especially in a pub. But we time is limited, so that's probably all from me for now. Thank you very much. Francis Farrell for your time. Thank you, Roland, as always, for hosting so well. Let's go then to our final thoughts. Um, Francis or Dom, anything from you at all? Just one very quick thought from me, since we were reflecting there on lessons learned in military strategy. Of course, this is something that has happened many times in military history. You can only play your surprise trump card once. Happened in the First World War, of course, with tanks. It happened with, in the Second World War with Blitzkrieg, and it happened even further back in the Napoleonic era. Napoleon had many strategies which were uh, innovative for their time, but the reason he was defeated was that the... David's laughing at me. Is the reason that he was defeated was ultimately the learning of lessons. And so I think this is something that, of course, is wise. Illusioni in his essay was keen to also emphasize, we spoke about that earlier on, was also keen to emphasize the importance of technology and advanced weapons because they want to keep the advantages that they had before. But of course, that's very, very difficult in an evolving military context. Laughing just through affection, Francis. I wondered if we would get through an entire episode without any Napoleonic references. But Dom Nichols, you also have a final thought. Yeah, I just want to say that we went, around for, went for a walk around Kiev last night, went up to St. Michael's Square, had a look 
as I do when I come here at the Wall of Remembrance for those that have fallen since 2014 in the service of the country. And it's been updated over the last few years. There's thousands of additional pictures up there. Now I was going around looking for specific names, which luckily I didn't see, but I'll keep looking. I may have missed. But I was interested to see there were, you talk about how this is an international war. There's external international support. There's also internal support here. There were photographs and notes for for a couple of Australians, Australian citizens who've died in the service of Ukraine. There's also quite a collection of Belarusians who were fighting for Ukraine and have died here. So if you're ever in Kiev, go and have a look at the memorial wall. It's updated daily, tragically, but very interesting to see how many other people from far and wide are coming here to fight and, uh, and die for Ukraine. For us. Thank you. Dom and Francis and Roland. Francis Farrell, would you like the very final words today? Yeah, sure. On the topic of the memorial wall, you can also go down to the actual square where you have all these little flags and they are added a lot more often. And that's very, a very compelling sight. And speaking of international volunteers, and you see a lot of different flags. You can just spot them. It's funny, for example, Armenian flags and Azerbaijani flags just next to each other because, yeah, it, it's a question of people's values at the end of the day. And that doesn't necessarily depend on nationality. There are these Belarusian units. There's even a couple of Russian, ethnic Russian units fighting in Ukraine, for Ukraine. And yeah, I guess final thoughts regarding that. What to say apart from a basic reaction to this objective gloom? If you don't feel the gloom, then you're not in touch with reality. But it's a question of what you do. And I think, again, really appreciate the effort that you guys do day in and day out to, to cover Ukraine and have the world not forget. That's what we're doing here at the Kiev Independent as well. But for anyone listening, donating... To, to good causes, to the military. It's funny, you can donate straight to FPV drones these days and think about how your money knocked out a Russian tank. That kind of thing is what we all need just to respond to that gloom and decide to do something about it. Thank you so much for your time, Francis. And thank you again to the Kiev Independent for the wonderful work you do. And thank you so much for inviting us to your really quite nice offices in this wonderful podcast studio. We, I, yeah, it's, it's been really brilliant to spend some time with your journalists and to talk to them about their work. Roland, can we hand back to you in London for your final thought and just to wrap up? Final thought. There, there's a quick news update, which I think we should add in, which is it looks like Twitter have blocked Twitter X have blocked Yulia Navalnaya's account. We don't have much further information about that, but that will, of course, fuel the speculation about Elon Musk's sympathies. All we're doing at the moment is... Oh, Twitter. Sorry, it's updated. Twitter has restored the account of Alexei Navalny's widow following a torrent of criticism. So that's all happened since we were speaking. My final thought, February in Kiev is a... It's quite an emotional time, to be honest, for me personally. If I was there today, if one of you wants to, on my behalf, wander down to the square, and I think on the left-hand side of uh, Institutka Street, looking up the hill, there's a floral clock on the left. If you look up past that floral clock, that's where it happened, really. And you will see a memorial for the men and women who were shot dead that day 10 years ago, which was... there, There are ways of saying that day was where it really got going and brought us to this point. That was a horrible day. So if one of you would do that for me, go and say a little bit of a hello to what the Ukrainians call the Heavenly Hundred, I'd appreciate that. Coming up, David Knowles speaks to Alexander Hrebet, a reporter at the Kiev Independent.
Earlier today, David Knowles spoke to Alexander Hrebet, a reporter at the Kiev Independent who covers, among other subjects, misconduct in the Ukrainian military. They spoke about his investigations and the challenges of reporting in Ukraine at war. Alexander, thank you so much for your time. For our listeners, could you just introduce yourself and your work? Thank you guys for having me. My name is Alexander Hrebet. I'm a reporter with the Kiev Independent and I mostly cover and which my beats are occupied territories and the misconduct in the Ukraine's military leadership. Misconduct in Ukraine's military leadership, that's a big topic and a difficult one maybe to talk about. How do you cover it? What kind of stories are you looking at? All of such uh, stories and uh, topics are difficult, definitely because the country is at war, firstly, and like every misconduct leads to the um, casualties on the battlefield, definitely. So, and to report on those stuff uh, is our only duty, to be honest, to ease the service of those soldiers and defenders, as we call them here, and the fr- while they are deployed to the front lines. So, the more we report on the misconduct happening within the Ukrainian army or the Ukrainian National Guard, which is the branch of the internal ministry, is helping our guys and girls who are defending the country, not only Ukraine, to to survive, so to say. So a lot of misconduct leads to the casualties on the battlefield, to the so the soldiers being killed in action, being wounded in action. Sometimes they are not being well evacuated from the battlefield. So all of that stuff is crucial for the country at war to stand against Russian aggression. And the free press, free media is the only possible institution that can address those stuff because the defense minister or whoever from the officials, especially the military one, which are so conservative, they are not really willing to share a lot of information, especially the bad one. Could you, just for our listeners outside of Ukraine, could you go into a bit more detail about some of this misconduct, some of this misconduct that you've encountered? How did you discover it and what was happening? A couple of stories with it. It was about the International Legion uh, within the Ukrainian, Ukraine Armed Forces. Uh, it was the, firstly, it was a whistleblower hint, so to say. And we started to dig because we were hinted that there is a, could be, and might be, the guy who is imposing himself who is he not. An, an imposter, basically. Yeah, an yeah, imposter, yeah. yeah. And so we dig into that. Me and uh, my former colleague and the co-author of these uh, invest- two stories, investiga- investigative stories, Anna Marunyuk. Uh, so we got the guy. We found out that he is a, a, Poli- a former Polish gangster from the biggest Polish mafia band from the 90s, which was a turbulent time after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. Um, So he was doing a lot of bad stuff in Poland, including he was involved in assassination against the Polish National Police Chief General Marek Papawa in the 90s. I don't remember the year right now. But so he was involved in the hiring the killers who were Russian and the Belarusian guys. So when they eventually killed the general, uh, police general. And he was, he spent a couple of years in, in Polish prison and we met some of those people who were sitting with him in there, like in the suburbs of Warsaw. And then we found out that he's on the run and he's been wanted in Poland since 2015 and nobody knows where he is. 
and thankfully to the that Ukrainian court registries and a lot of different registries they are open here, and some of sometimes they are not. So the rule is that the names and the addresses, all the personal data, is hidden from these registries. But sometimes the lack of experience of those people who are filling those forms, so to say, in, in, in there. So they left some of the names on there. And because of that, we found, find that he's in Ukraine. He has a residency here. We found his residency number. We have his Polish passport numbers. We had his address. We And eventually we got that to the point that we found out he has a criminal cases and investigations open like ongoing investigations with in Ukraine against him it was particularly tree it was into possessing the illegal weapons and explosives and particles for those to produce them and or to manufacture also it was the robbery but armed robbery i don't remember that the exact word in English for that term. And it was the sexual assault. So we we found him because of that, because of those and one. So we did the face recognition. We had his old pictures from 90s. He's an older man right now. But the face recognition helped us a lot. So we knew that it's the person exactly. And when we confronted him on the phone, which I did this call, he didn't Decline. He is a, a Piotr Kapuscinski who Im- impersonate himself as uh, Sasha Kuczynski in Ukraine, Ukrainian army, and he's wearing the Colonel Sepolis, which is high-ranking officers. But according to the Ukrainian military law, there is the foreigners. They are not allowed to have the ranks higher than the sergeants. So meaning they cannot be officers at all. But he's wearing those and. Uh, given such an orders to the foreigners who serving under his command within the foreign legion or the international legion. And some of those people were killed, went missing on the battlefield. So he stole their gear. He was ordering them to loot the shopping mall in Luhansk Oblast. And we found this place. We, uh, we got the videos of the soldiers recording him. We published that. I was a great and we identified the place. We double-checked that the foreign legion was standing next to because they, there are several shopping malls in that city, which is destroyed right now, in Lysychansk, the city of Lysychansk in Luhansk Oblast. Uh, so we identified the place. Uh, we compared it to the video the soldiers shared with us who were ordered to loot, but they declined, hopefully, saying that they came here to defend Ukrainians, which is true. And they didn't come here to steal from Ukrainians, basically. What happened after you had exposed him? Basically nothing, unfortunately. So as of as of last year, I don't remember when it was this strike, the deadly strike against the uh, Kramatorsk Cafe. You probably remember that. On the police pictures they shared on their webpage on the national police of ukraine they shared the pictures and we spotted on the two pictures the guy looking at at the camera and another picture from the from his side we did again so it's it was definitely him but we need to double check all the time and we checked with the face recognition ai tool and it was him again so meaning a year or so after two stories which got gained a huge coverage across the world, including the Telegraph was reporting about that, and the New York Times, the 
German Spiegel, Polish media in South America, in Africa, everywhere in Asia were reporting about that. Nothing had changed, unfortunately. I don't know what is happening to him right now. I was asking about him through my sources within the military intelligence agency, but they didn't want to talk because for them it's a sensitive topic and we exposed a lot of their so to say, uh, activities and the branches. So nobody before our stories broke out. Nobody knew that the International Legion has uh, two branches. One, the bigger one, and the major one, and the, so to say, advertisement one uh, is within the ground forces slash land forces. But the smaller one combined and consists of the most skillful and experienced fighters, foreign fighters, I mean, they were under the command of the Ukraine's military intelligence. And we exposed all of those things, but they really don't want to talk about that. And I understand them, of course, because they want to talk about it. And as I told you at the very beginning, they are really conservative, the military one, not only in Ukraine, everywhere across the world. And they want to hide as much as they can. But we're still trying to keep an eye on the guy, definitely. And we try to, you know, pull the strings where we can, talk to the soldiers, former one, because they, they, you know, all, everybody knows each other. And with those who are still serving within the Legion, uh, to check how is it going with uh, Sasha Kuczynski, a.k.a. Piotr Piotr Kapuscinski, a.k.a. Sasha Kuczynski. You've said a few times now that the military is sort of conservative and doesn't like too much change. Could you talk a little bit more about why? Because I just think from a foreigner's perspective, surely the ability to do that is hugely valued because you need to constantly be evolving what you're doing and improving it and becoming more efficient and more imaginative and innovative. But what's holding them back, do you think? Mm, For the military people, as the conservative one, as we talked before, the changes are quite hard because they are comfortable already in those circumstances they are in. And changing something, meaning their protocols will change, their attitude towards the service, their service will change and they will need and they will oblige to do more better stuff and more work to do and sometimes maybe more paperwork, definitely. And right now, oh, I'm not sure I can talk about this, so, but let's try. Me and my colleague, Igor Kosov, we've been working on the one story, and a big one, regarding exactly the changes or not changes within the Ukrainian army and of Ukraine's defense forces, of the Ukrainian armed forces and the National Guard. So they are combined into the defense forces, along other branches of the, I don't know, police, state emergency services, and so on. This is a story about how the system is changing or not in one particular way, the medical way, and how it does affect on, has effect on the wounded people on the front line and what is happening to them afterwards, after they've been wounded and retreated, uh, not retreated, sorry, evacuated from the battlefield. Because we had a lot of complaints from the military people. We know they've been reported to their high commands that it needed to be changed. We have the legal NGOs who are overseeing kind of such stuff. They also like ring all the bells that that needs to be changed because the medical system within the military is not the first 
stage of that, the first stage of that is great. If we didn't have that, we could have much more casualties on the battlefield. But afterwards, of those being wounded, they go through the what the soldiers refer as the bureaucratic inferno. Bureaucratic inferno? Yeah. Meaning they need to wait a lot. They need to bring a lot of papers, sometimes unnecessary. They need to bring sometimes the witnesses who were who saw they being wounded on the battlefield because it, it on that information depends a lot of like payments afterwards, the bonuses, the compensation for the wound and all of uh, like huge money sometimes. But what happened what should soldiers should do if everybody being killed in action and only one he survived? That's the problem. And sometimes so the people came to the journalists as the last resort, so to say, to to help this situation because they want it. They know their um, comrades, they are there fighting still. And now we have the huge withdrawal of the forces from Avdiivka, like 72nd Brigades, uh, 110th, and so on, like thousands maybe of people. We don't know how many. And a lot of them being wounded while retreating and all while being there. And now, recently, a couple of days ago, we know the story that some of those heavily wounded soldiers being abandoned in the one of the major strong points in Avdivka, uh, next to Donetsk, so which is the major Russian-occupied city ever in within Ukrainian territory, and my home city. The, um, this is the neat stronghold, so they left six people over there, and their relatives of those three, they saw, they watched on the Russian propaganda videos that bodies of their loved one. And yesterday in the evening, the commandership, they admitted that those soldiers being left behind, but it's not a really good term for that, but it's what happened basically. And that those six soldiers were killed, basically executed. They had to be captured as a prisoners of the war, but they were killed by the Russian forces, which constitutes a war crime, one of the heaviest one probably. So, and they identified already five people and they are proceeding identification of the last one so and all of those people who were withdrawn from the area to the second line of defense line so to say they need to be also treated well and so after being wounded they transferred to the hospitals somewhere nearby or a couple of hundred kilometers away from the front lines and that's where the Unpleasant stuff starts, begin, yeah, and uh, and it, but they are still the government is changing the system, but but the system is so strongly standing on its feet from Soviet times, and you know there is a saying in here, especially among the military, that the small Soviet army is not able to defeat big Soviet army. So it is changing. Of course, a lot of stuff changed, but within the um, these medical commissions, uh, after soldiers being wounded and treated already, is the big problem. They want to change right now. There are a couple of bills, not the bills, draft laws, in the Ukrainian par- parliament. So being on the hearings, and one of those went through the first vote. Uh, we need to have two votes to to uh, uh, a draft law become a law. So. They are trying to change, but 
as we see, not too much is going to change, unfortunately. Do you think, maybe it's too early to say really, but do you think the new commander-in-chief, Sersky, will have a positive impact on this? Do you think he might speed up this or not? What, what's your impression? Ooh. The commander-in-chief, Sersky, mm, doesn't have any other choice but to implement the changes. It's not only up to him because it's a law, so it's not to, up to the military to change the law, it's up to the parliament, the government and the national bank, bank who is, has the right to change the law or introduce the law. But he definitely needs to, with his decrees and orders, he, he can influence some of the processes which are ongoing within the military, definitely. Because if he doesn't change, he will be replaced for the next one. And like it could be so on and so on. We see the Russian military commandership is changing constantly because they do not achieve what they want to achieve. That's that's obvious thing. And if Sirsky is not going to do this, but I want to believe that he is going to do because he knows the problems, definitely. He was the land forces commander just before his new appointment. He's been within the army for ages, so to say. He knows the system from the inside better than all of us do and better than every civilian does. He knows what to what needs to be changed. But it's not only up to him, definitely. We, as the reporters and uh, as the citizens, we are waiting for those changes. And if so, we go, go in only to cheer the new commander-in-chief. You've spoken about your investigations. You spoke about the um, International Legion imposter. And then you said nothing changed. Like you did, the, you exposed him. You exposed him and nothing happened and you're still waiting. Do you get, like, you know, it must be really frustrating for you to be able to show things that are wrong that should change and then nobody does anything about it. How do you, I mean, could you talk about that and how you deal with it? I feel he was punished in some way. And uh, the other guy we've been writing about, the one of the commanders, battalion commanders within the Legion. So we've been reporting about, and we were the first Ukrainian media actually, to report on the weapons misconduct, so to say, yeah, about four assault rifles and other weapons. I'm pretty sure they were punished for that. Maybe some of the military way they have those punishment papers, so to say, and they have stamps in their military papers that saying that he's been punished for that and that and that. I feel that because they were the cold and all of those that things we heard constantly before publishing the stories, they stopped. Yeah, so people stopped to complain, like soldiers stopped to complain, meaning something had changed. Yeah, it, it's it, maybe the guy, the Polish guy, I mean, does something for the military intelligence that we don't know. And he's like needed over there in some way. Maybe he has some connections to Russia and he can communicate in the way they, the military intelligence agency, need. It's only my assumption. I don't know why. this Because I... I of course, me and Anna, we were trying to, um, what's the word, to um, 
to understand why he wasn't dismissed or why he wasn't being detained, he wasn't being expelled to Poland because he's wanted on 71 charge over there and is still wanted. So I recently checked the Polish police website on the, uh, the wanted list of the Polish police. Mm, that's only my assumptions that he's needed for the army. And when he's not needed anymore, they will expel him or deport him, or this is the word, when you send the criminal to the other country, he's wanted to be in, oh, extradited. extradited. Thank you so much. Yeah, so he will be extradited to, the, to Poland, where he will face and uh, face ju- justice. Just quickly, because I know you have to go to your briefing in a, in a couple of minutes. Could you just describe, maybe this is a journalist question for the journalists, but the kind of reaction, how it's been dealing with the government and the army when you've been doing things which are embarrassing for them, which make them answer questions and uncomfortable questions. What's been the reaction? Oh, it depends who you talk to. If they are, if it's like people of the so middle rank, so to say, they are okay. The lower rank, they are fine to talk about it because they, they are those first line people who are affected by those unpleasant stuff happening within the army. The higher you go, of course, the more unpleasant because they, it's their reputation, is their maybe position, is their ranking, is their bonuses, is their everything. So if they are dismissed because of exposure of their misconduct, they are not going to do anything. Their life is going to be stopped because the military is uh, not their job it's a lifestyle as like a journalist it's not a job it's a lifestyle so the if they are dismissed uh, because of their misconduct being exposed within the media they will and so they will their lives they will stop kind of and they need to go for the they need to retire basically or to go for the private military campaign somewhere in the africa or latin america and to train or do something, I don't know what. And so the higher you go, the more harder to speak to that to them, to the officials, basically because they are trying to, because of they are conservative, because it's the state of the war, and they are not willing to expose more about the military because it can, or they think it can, help Russian Russians, it can help whoever, their enemies, like other others, maybe intelligence agencies, foreign intelligence agencies from the hostile countries like Iran, maybe they are there, nobody knows, from South Korea, from where, from other Russian allies, allied countries and China, definitely. Very quickly, because I know you have to go very quickly, what's been your proudest moment as a reporter in the past nearly two years? Proudest moment? A couple of those I'm proud of, uh, but... Yeah, the proudest moment is that it's not the one moment, but it's like uh, like um, a long-lasting days and months, and already turning into a couple of years, even more because I've been reporting on the so become be, being the voice of the people who are living under Russian occupation. I've been reporting on that for over a decade and for almost two years with the Kiev Independent. And being their voice is the best thing I can do and the, which excites me more and frightens me more and scares me more, of course, because if I can speak on behalf of them with their voices, with their quotes, so I know their quotes will be heard overseas, 
But what frightens me that I, so we need to hide their identities. And maybe if I'm wrong somewhere, it could lead to their detention, tortures, and death, of course. Because the Russians, they don't want to, they don't like people who talk, so speak the truth, basically. And that's, that's what they do in every occupied cities. What they do first, they don't occupy the SBU office or the governmental buildings. They occupy the TV tower. That's the first thing they do because they need to control the information coming into and out, of course. So the proudest moment, lasting moment, I'm still proud of that, being the voice of the people who are living under Russian occupation. And these are two, several million, million people, several million people still living in a harsh condition in, a, so to say, open air gulag camp, huge one, being forced to have the Russian citizenship to change their identity without any possibility to learn and study their language, to practice their religion, because others, but Russian Orthodoxy, the the Islam and Buddhism, which are like official, only official and allowed religious and branches to practice in Russia. And Russia covers when they occupies its territories, it gives its their rule, of course, and applies, implement all of its barbaric sometimes laws on the occupied territories. So if you're going to the Catholic Church or if you're going to Protestant Church or you practice, I don't know, shamanism, whatever, you name it, you're going to be punished for that. Or maybe in jail, imprisoned. So the people are still living there in a harsh conditions under constant threat of being detained, tortured, expelled, of course. So the recent Putin decree, like from the last summer, probably, if you're not registered in the occupied territories and you don't have Russian passport, you can be expelled from your home where the Russia came. And some of the people, they need to flee two times or multiple times of um, running away from Russian aggression. Yeah. You're going to be late for your briefing. Maybe this is something we can talk about more later because it's a really fascinating part of your reporting. Sure, sure. Brilliant. Sure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Pleasure. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to Ukraine, the latest. Your support and attention means so much to all of us. And just in case you didn't know, The Telegraph runs another podcast you may be interested in. Battle Lines is our weekly global affairs and defence podcast where we look at conflicts and unrest around the world with the Telegraph's sterling foreign desk. On Battle Lines, you'll hear updates and news on everything from the violence in the Middle East and the Red Sea, civil wars in Sudan and Myanmar, to unrest in Ecuador. Join myself, Roland Oliphant, Sophia Yan and Natalia Vasilieva on Battle Lines, published every Friday. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To support our work and to stay on top of all our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, please subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at telegraph.co.uk forward stroke Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our foreign affairs newsletter, bringing stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. We also do the same for other breaking international stories. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it.
Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Giles Gear, Adelie Poisman-Ponte and Georgia Cohn. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. <laughs>